seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. Yet the wicked are not so. But are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now there was a time when perhaps Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were actually connected. But the way they come to us is that they're separated. But these two Psalms, Psalm 1 and 2, and next week, Psalm 2, is an entryway into the whole book of Psalms. It's like uh, the front door of 150 poems given to us. And we're introduced to a man who has a particular proclivity for meditating on the law. And that's important. Because what we realize is when we look at the Psalms, there's five whole books to them. Just like the first five books of the Bible which is called the Torah, or the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But in the Psalms, you see, they're actually broken up into five books, from Psalm 1 to Psalm 41 is, you know, book 1, Psalm 42 to 72, 73 to 89, 90 to 106, 107 to 105, 150. Five perfect sets of books of the Psalms, like the five books of the Torah. And at the very first, we're introduced to a man who loves to meditate on the Torah. And that's on purpose. For what we're given here, the very beginning is a poetic law. A law with flowers, a law with scent, something beautiful. You know, not just the code of some legal code like you'd read in Leviticus, but the whole thing you have in the law now repurposed and reformulated in a poetic, emotional, soulless, psychological display of all God's wisdom that is particularly inviting and palatable for deep meditation. It's beautiful. It's deep. It's poetic. There's nuance. There's this way to understand. And that way to understand. And it could be a whole life of meditating on these particular poems. And that would be the point of the man from the first psalm. Is that he happens to like doing these things. Meditating on the wisdom of God. Psalm 1 and 2, if the Psalms are kind of like a very large uh, mansion or building with many rooms, Psalm 1 and 2 would be the vestibule. It would be uh, the entryway into this great house. And as we enter that house, uh, we are uh, first exposed to some very important things or, or principles in which how all the house could only make sense. Jared Wilson is a 
scholar who's looked into the Psalms a significant portion of his life, he, he draws this out to say, the whole book makes sense. As we mentioned earlier, actually, and Steve was leading us in to say, um, what's hard is it's 150 Psalms, and they're all poetry about various things, and it's racked people's brains many times to stand back and say, now what exactly is this? Why is it this way? Well, Jared Wilson says it this way. When you actually look at them, the first three books of the Psalms all primarily deal with David, the greatest king of all of Israel, and all the promises that were given to him. Then, in the book three, or book four rather, the Psalms are particularly negative, and they deal with the failure of the monarchy, all the kings that came after David, and all the people that followed him, how it utterly gloriously failed. That Israel didn't do what they were supposed to do. All the promises that were left there, all the knots were not tied up. All these loose ends of all the prophetic mysteries. That book 3 pretty much is saying how much the kingdom has failed. Book 4 rather. And then the final book, book 5, speaks about those who are still trusting in the Lord. Those who are still holding on to the promises and trying to trust and obey. Trying to follow the one true God, particularly, mostly, as they were exiled into Babylon. And that's actually when many people say these psalms came together. That is, in the um, uh, 6th and 5th century. That is, in the 500s or 400 years before Jesus. That these compilations of poems were actually put into some book form that we have today. So it's a psalm book written when there is no temple, when there is no land of Israel, when all the promises of a great monarchy and kingdom are actually not presently palpable, not able to be seen or understood, that all the promises actually seem to have utterly failed. And so here, out of that, emerges this book of Psalms. But the most beautiful thing about the way the whole book of Psalms is structured, and I hope that you would, you would hear this for your life, beautiful. The two types, most importantly, are the ones that have to deal with laments. That's sorrowful psalms. You read some of those, and the psalmist is beside himself and distraught and despair about some catastrophe. The other types of psalms are praise, in which everything in the world in that time in the psalmist's life is going well. The crops are coming in, the children are healthy, and it's just a song of saying, God, you are good. I love you. So, psalms of lament and psalms of praise. Now, what's most beautiful about the book of Psalms is that people have observed that when you read the whole thing, the psalms of lament decrease and the psalms of praise increase. That's, that's marvelous. That is, as you begin the book, there's more laments, there's more laments, there's lots of psalms that are sad and sorrowful, but when you get to the end of the book, there's less of those. There's more psalms about God's praise and glory, and all the final collection of psalms, the hallelujah psalms, all begin with, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, straight through to the end. 
five books of Psalms, the last five Psalms of Psalms are called the praise Psalms, where they're exalting, and in the end it, it, it culminates with a crescendo of all of creation is praising God. There is no lament, there is no sorrow, there is no darkness, there is no turmoil, there is no enemy, there are no Canaanites or Philistines, no war. It's almost like Revelation. In which he wipes every tear from our eye. And all we have left is psalms of praise. It's all structured into this. That you see in your life. That if you've ever been dejected and depressed. And I'm not really a, not much of a Baptist church. But we could do be like, show of hands. <laughs> I'll count the laughter as participation. But I think we could all probably raise our hand and said, I know what that feels like to be completely depressed and broken. And God has written a book for you. So if you read those Psalms in which you can relate to the man's darkness and his despair, you only have to keep reading. Because they are written by your Lord in such a way as to bring you out. They are written with the truth of the trajectory of your life in Christ. That no matter how dark and deep you could go, there is no depth these psalms cannot reach you. And there is no way it will take you except up. For they will stop with lament and only be praise. It's a gospel in all of this. So it is a poetic Torah, and Torah means instruction. So if the Psalms were like a school of instruction, maybe Numbers or Leviticus or these parts of the Bible that we really don't like to read because it's just kind of obtuse and boring, kind of like math and science class. But the Psalms, you see, that's when you get to go to art class or music class. But what you're doing is the same thing. You're looking at the law, but through a different lens of poetry and beauty. It's not just about knowledge. You can know the law. You can read the Old Testament law. But in Psalms, you find wisdom. There's a wisdom to the law. To know something is to learn something. To have wisdom is to meditate on that. And to know how to bring it out in all of your life. To apply it. It's one thing to know the law. It's another thing to have the wisdom to meditate on the law in the midst of your despair. In the midst of your sorrow. That's when it's not just a textbook. But it's actually a book for life. A book on the way. A book you read while you walk. That's the Psalms. That's why music is so beautiful and easy to remember. So you can actually be meditating on the Torah, if you can set yourself to memorizing music. So this instruction begins as we are, in two ways, introduced and invited. Now, for the remainder, we're going to look at that. Who is this man in the psalm? He is called the blessed man. We are introduced to him. 
But also when you read the psalm, it sounds almost like you're being invited to be like this man. To be this man. It actually says particularly the blessed man. Not a blessed man. The blessed man. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. It's like being entered into a house at the vestibule and someone says, now you're here. You've entered into the Psalms. I would like to introduce you to somebody. He is called the blessed man. And at the front door, you have to do nothing more than meditate on him. And as you meditate on him, you find out he is meditating on the law. And then you have to meditate on yourself and say, now who is this man and who am I? Is this an introduction? Am I being introduced to somebody? Or is this an invitation? Am I being invited to be like somebody? Should I be like this man? Am I this man? And who is this man, this blessed man? It's, of course, an invitation when you hear it. Blessed is the man that is happiness. That is, he's not cursed. It's kind of inviting. Wouldn't you want to be blessed? Isn't that kind of a common consensus among anyone who happens to be breathing? That I like to be blessed? It's very inviting to say, yes, I'm hearing this psalm. I like what I hear. In fact, I actually want to be like this guy. Actually, maybe this psalm is an invitation to me, an injunction to me to be the blessed man. Look at how he meditates on the law. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Go be like this man. I'm inviting you to be blessed. It follows to say, this man, he yields his fruit in season and out of season. He is like a leaf on a tree that never withers. In all that he does... He prospers. Don't you want that? Isn't this psalm, doesn't it have a hint or a sound of invitation? Oh, so there's a way to always prosper? I want that. I want to be this man. Kings can be depressed. And beggars can be blessed because it's not a matter of money. It's a matter of meditation. The richest man is the man who can be content with the least. People say, there's a blessedness to this man in meditating on God's word. That it's true. Kings can be depressed. We are, in all respects, kings. We're wealthier than ever in human history. We have everything. We live better than the kings ever would have 200 years ago. And we happen to be very depressed. Suicidal. Hating ourselves. Isolated. But a poor beggar who can meditate on God's word, the psalm holds true, is actually blessed. But this blessed man, we're told he walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Nor does he stand in the way of sinners. Nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight, his happiness and joy is in the law of the Lord. The Torah of those five books. And on his law he meditates this way. Day and night. Now, 
Meditation on God's word. Day and night. That is, delighting in God's word. Day and night. It sounds like an invitation, and it is. It's good to have the law of God, to meditate on it day and night. Loving God's law in all wisdom as it is given to us in the word. The word meditation there means to murmur. It means to mutter. It's, it's exactly what you know in an experience in your life in which you have these thoughts to yourself. But then even so, they're so strong and palpable that they actually make it into your mouth. Be a, a more modern way is what a common thing that uh, Freud found with a, a Freudian slip of the tongue. He spoke of a slip of the tongue. We use that word slip of the tongue. It's, it's so deep upon your soul and imp- this impression is so much on your own mind that it actually makes it out to your tongue but in a soft little whisper. Right? That is the word there, Hagah, in Hebrew to mean meditate. It means to murder, murmur to yourself, to mutter, to speak God's word softly to your own soul, to take counsel with yourself, to preach to yourself, to counsel yourself, to give God's word to yourself. This is the man who's blessed. The man who can pull down God's blessings from heaven and bring them to bear upon his own soul. He has all he needs. He has the very word of God. And in that, not in money, or in anything this world can offer, is actual blessedness. For kings can be depressed, but beggars can be blessed if they have this word bearing upon their soul. And this man is that blessed man. And everything he does, because he's always working outside of the inward counsel of God, as he's meditated on it day and night, everything he does has to be in accord with God's word, because the counsel of God's word is bearing upon him, therefore in his mind, which is only the center of all his thinking and doing and acting and being. Therefore everything he does, everything he touches, has to work in accord with that counsel, as it is subsisting within his own mind, as he is a meditative man. He is a self-sufficient man who can stand with his own two feet and the word of God. It's a remarkable thing to open up, to have this introduction, and it sounds like an invitation, but maybe it really is just an introduction. Because everything I just said is a problem. Because it's not true of us. So are we being invited to be this person? Or are we being introduced to someone who is this person? Who delights in his law day and night? If you did that, if we did that, We wouldn't have any time to sin. And I don't know about you, but I've still found time to budget in my schedule sinning. It just creeps right in there on my Monday at 4.30. It just shows up. So I guess I don't meditate on the law of God day and night. Maybe I'm not this man. Maybe I'm being introduced to someone else. The blessed man is like a living tree. He's like a tree planted by a stream of water. And he yields his fruit in season and out of season. His leaf does not wither, 
And that beautiful passage, and all that he does, I love that. All that he does, he prospers. He can't fail. Everything he touches turns to gold. Everything he wants to do is good. Because his wanting and his willing and his word is all tied to God's word. He's so connected to the counsel of the Torah that he is living in the Torah. He is walking in the Torah. He is living in the counsel of God. Because if God wants something, of course, to happen, it will happen. And this man happens to do everything that's supposed to happen to be blessed and prosperous. It's almost as if this man is walking in the will of God all the time. That is the prescriptive will of God, not the decretive will of God. That is everything that is good and, and pleasing to God. He's doing it all. And everything he does prospers. It seems that would be a great invitation. I would like to say that about myself. I would like to say that everything I do prospers. That everything I've done is done with the beautiful motives of Jesus Christ at every microscopic level. And that it has always been accord with the eternal gospel to the white throne of Jesus. That everything that I've done has always been oriented toward that one end. Where the river of humanity flows. But in fact, that has not been the way we live. It seems much more as we're being introduced to someone very strange, very different from us. To do things all the right way that they always succeed. He is spoken of as a tree, particularly a cultivated tree. The word there, it says that he is planted by a stream of water. It's not the normal word for a stream or a river. It's the word for a man-made canal. A type of river that was particularly crafted for the tree. A river that circles around the roots in such a way that this tree is nourished. This tree is fed. All the water of God's word has been circumvented around the tree in such a way that no matter what the season, no matter what the drought, in the good and in the bad, this particular man cannot fail. He always is green. He always has life. He always has sustenance because the word of God has enveloped him almost in a cultural artificial way that is almost unnatural. A type of irrigation that should not be the case in nature. That this tree is a glorious living tree. Every season. Always prosperous. In all that he does, he succeeds. We do not live our lives that kind of way. Now many times, and I experience this myself, Experience this in speaking pastorally. Come into the office. Sit down. I feel like God's away from me. I feel like God's so far. I'm just hungry. I'm empty. I feel famished or dry. Do you see... There's a truth in which God does pull back to strengthen us, to make us stand in faith. But I would have to venture to say that the majority of it is we don't know that we walked away from him. And then we get angry that he walked away from us. See, there is a man who's planted so closely to the water that all he can do is suck up the nutrients of God's word. But do you notice in the psalm the digression? 
Do you notice how this man is not the man who stands by the way? He doesn't walk contrary with the wicked. And he surely won't be sitting with the seat of scoffers. But that movement away, that's not what trees that are firmly planted do. It's what you and I do. And you feel like you're not being fed. And you feel like God's water is not on you at all. And you feel so empty. Stop and turn around. Because unfortunately, like this tree, you and I have legs. And they tend to be sinful sometimes. And we walk away from him and then think he has left us. Not for this man. We're introduced to a man that gives us a warning particularly. All the more reason to really give us warning. And I say concern to say, perhaps we are not being invited. But we are being introduced to somebody. Because he goes on to speak of the wicked. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away with one gust. The word for wicked in Hebrew is the same word for empty and vain. Reich means something that is useless and pointless and shallow and also morally corrupt, wicked. And that image matches with everything we see in this chaff. It is vanity. It's not the wheat. It's not what you need. It's not the nutrients. It's the chaff you throw up into the air and the wind pushes it away. It's useless. It's vain. It's not good for food. That's the wicked. They are vain. They have no roots like this one tree planted by the stream. They are rootless dust that the wind, the very power and presence of God's judgment, moves away with the breath of his nostril. That's wickedness. And it's vanity in Scripture. Therefore, because of the wicked being so, they will not stand the judgment. After the tremendous blessing of seeing this blessed man and seeing the image of all his life, and your heart is almost saying, I want that. I want to be that man. And then for a moment, even being introspective enough to say, but I'm not. Insult to injury as the psalm pushes us in the other direction to say, there's also the wicked. And they cannot even stand in the judgment. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And here's the question. And this is the question that sets the stage for the psalm. For the whole book. Is this. If this is only an introduction. That we are only being introduced to a very strange man. That you and I have not seen. Some anonymous individual called the blessed man. And it's not an invitation. It's not an invitation for us to consider ourselves this person. Then the sober warning is, what about the wicked people in the psalm? Maybe we should start asking about that. How much of a sinner do you have to be to not be counted in the congregation of the righteous? It's a good question to ask. How, like, how much? When you read this, you're like, all right, meditating on God's law day and night for how many days and how many nights? When can you break it? When can you not be meditating all the time and this psalm still be true for you? These are questions the psalm never asks. 
How much of a sinner do I have to be? Little sins, any sin? To not be counted in the congregation of the righteous. And how much meditation do I really need? How, how endued with the word of God must I be to actually be considered a meditator? To actually be a man who has his roots planted by this living water we see? What if my life is like chaff? That is driven away. The psalm never answers that question. It just leaves it there for you. Oh, so so uncomfortably, doesn't it? You say, well, that's great for this guy, who's a blessed man. I'm reading the psalm. Now, what if I might happen to be a little chaffy? Is there any consolation for my soul if I won't make it into the congregation of the righteous? The psalm never asks that question. And the psalm never answers that question because it's trying to create in you attention so that you can actually read all 150 right. This is the front door to the poetic mysteries of God's eternal gospel. And if you are self-righteous and vain, you will like this psalm for all the wrong reasons. And you will say, I'll try my best and I'll be a blessed man. And you will receive 149 punches in the face to try to rid you and disabuse you of that deadly, deadly thought. The reason that we would only be like a sandcastle in the hurricane of God's judgment, driven away, And Jesus Christ is the only true way. I say because of Colossians 3.16. Paul writes to the Colossian church. And he says to them, now, I want you to sing. He says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart. That phrase opens up the whole book. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. That is a meditative type of dwelling. That it would be so in your mind like the man of Psalm 1, that you're meditating on the word of Christ, which is what? The Psalms. The word of Christ, he says, let that be the thing that is inside you, which is the Psalms. Now in the Greek, it could go two ways. And I don't try to do Greek because it's fun. Because we all know it isn't. But it's beautiful. And so it's important. Word of Christ is a genitive, could be translated the words that is subjectively that are spoken by Jesus, that Jesus is the subject of the word, that Jesus is speaking the word, or it could be translated objectively. That they are words spoken about Jesus. That they're almost like words that are coming down upon him. That all these psalms are speaking about Jesus. And so which is it? 
Are these psalms words inspired by God who happens to also be Jesus? Who Jesus is speaking these words? Inspired psalms, they are the words of Christ subjectively that Jesus is speaking these psalms out? Or are they objective words? Are they psalms that are speaking toward Jesus, pointing you toward him? And of course, we know the truth is that both are true. That this is the word of Christ. The inspired word of Jesus Christ speaking to you about himself. That's what Paul says the word of Christ is, the Psalms. That Jesus is speaking prophetically of himself. It is his own word pointing you back to him. That Jesus is speaking of himself. That we sing these Psalms to the Lord and that he sings them over us. That they are his love language. That's the point of poetry. He already wrote another letter called Leviticus, but it didn't move anyone's heart apparently. So he rewrote 150 love poems in such a way that you would know his Torah, his law, his instruction, and that we would sing it to him as the word of Christ, and that he would sing it back over us. And so now Psalm 1 makes sense. That yes, this is the blessed man. That it's true. That it is an introduction. And by way of being introduced to Jesus in Psalm 1, it then becomes an invitation to go ahead and be this man. As you have been given these blessings in Christ. You see, we're not the blessed man. It's abundantly clear in Romans 3.10 where Paul goes to the Romans and says, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away. Together they have become worthless or vain. That is, no one understands. Torah means instruction. No one has the Torah. Like the man in Psalm 1. No one seeks God. That is, no one delights in his law day and night. No one is the man in Psalm 1. All have turned aside and together become worthless. That is, turned aside. Do you hear in the psalm where he says, Walk not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the way of scoffers. That is called walking away. That is called exactly what Paul says everyone has done. They've turned aside. They are with God in righteousness. No, never. They are all consumed with this idea of walking about sin. And then getting more comfortable and standing next to some sin. And then all of a sudden being so identified with the sin that we can sit down with sin. And be not only what we believe, that is where we stand. Or how we behave, that is how we walk. But even where we belong. That we belong sitting with the seat of scoffers. Not even trying to walk on the way of righteousness. That's the indictment in Romans 3. That all of us have not even come an inch close to appropriating Psalm 1 to our name. That we are the exact opposite of this psalm. And together, he says, they have all become worthless. Which is what? That chaff that has no purpose. Vanity. Blown away by the wind and wickedness. Psalm 3, I can't believe the fact that Romans 3 would not be Paul literally reading the first psalm and writing a letter to the Romans. No one can prove it, but if he was writing that letter to the Romans and he had the book of Psalm 1 open to him, I would not be surprised. But there is another blessed man. Right after that, in Romans 4, he introduces us to another man. 
But to the one who believes him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then he quotes a psalm. In Romans 4 he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom God does not count his sin. And he points it all to say that there is a blessed man. You have to read 31 more psalms later. Into Psalm 32. And he quotes it. And says all those wicked. There is another way to blessing. To not be counted with all your sin. This is pure blessedness. And so ending. I want to bring this out. As far as this enigmatic statement that Jesus made with the cross. That you would see the cross. That is. That in the cross is. Is. Is a cross road or a contrast between what it means to be invited and also introduced. Introduced to Jesus and therefore invited into his blessedness. When Jesus went to carry that cross in Luke 23, he carried a heavy, heavy dead tree on his back. And we know Jesus in Psalm 1 is the living tree. He's the man who's alive. And he carries this dead tree. It's in a big, heavy, dead tree. And there's this man named Simon of Cyrene who's actually commissioned to have to help him carry it because it was so heavy. And as he's carrying this tree up to his inevitable death, there are these women that followed him. And there's this puzzling phrase Jesus said to them. As they were these weeping women, seeing him already flogged and mutilated and going to die, with whatever energy is left, as he's carrying this dead, lifeless tree, he turns over to them and says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves. For if they do this, what the Romans are doing to him, if they do this when the wood is green, what would they do when it is dry? He's the man of Psalm 1. He's the green wood. If you cut him open, he'd be alive. And he said that with a dead tree on his back. Isn't that beautiful? That he has made you blessed by dying on a dead tree for you. And he is the only green tree. The lush life lived by the law as the Lord he is, that we are introduced to a man carrying a dead tree. And he's a blessed man who died on a dead tree. And therefore you are invited to be blessed with him that you might pick up your dead tree. Pick up your cross and follow Jesus. And you will be blessed forever. This is how he has changed that whole psalm of cursing and brought it to blessing on your head. And only introduced you to all the love songs he has written for your soul. In Jesus' name we pray. Father, thank you that we have been given the grace to see this man in Psalm 1. And to know he is not us. But at the same time been given the grace to identify the man of Psalm 1. And know that he is you. And Lord, we thank you that he is you.
For you are more gracious and loving and giving than all of us. We thank you, Lord, that you have taken that tree for us. And that all your blessings for us are yes and amen. Amen. Would you please stand if you're able? We'll close the service singing Psalm 1.